Please rise now for the reading of God's Word. I'm turning your Bibles to Psalm 118, found on page 597 of the Church Bible. I'm reading the first nine verses. Give all your attention now to the reading of God's revealed truth. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let Israel now say, his mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron now say, his mercy endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord now say, his mercy endures forever. I called on the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I shall see my desire on those who hate me. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Now turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. And actually we'll begin reading in verse 22 of chapter 1. This is found on page 1146. And we'll only read to verse 7. Again, hear God's word, his truth. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness toward us, in Christ Jesus. This ends the reading of God's word, and let us remember that all flesh is like grass, and all of its glory is like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord abides forever. And all of God's people said, Amen. Please be seated. Let us go to our God in prayer once again. Our gracious Heavenly Father, again we thank you that we can come before your throne and hear you speak to us through your written word, the Bible, exhorted to this congregation. We pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you'd give us that spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Christ, so that we might truly know him, that we might know what is the hope to which we have been called, what are the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding immeasurable greatness of the power of God toward us who believe. Help us with these things now, Lord. Guide and direct us, and may it all be for your glory's sake. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So we continue with our journey through what has been called the Queen of the Epistles, the book of Ephesians. And we have seen the revelation of God's grand eternal plan for the church and creation to sum up all things in Christ. And we've seen how God has blessed his people with all spiritual blessings in Christ in the heavenlies. 
And we saw the work of the Trinity in providing those blessings in election, redemption, and the application of that redemption to God's people. We also considered over the past couple of weeks Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, a prayer that all of us should pray for one another and for ourselves. I also mentioned that Christianity is a religion of knowledge. Now, what do I mean by the word religion? Sometimes that word uh, offends people or scares them off. They think, oh, that's just that stuffy, theological, you know, mumbo-jumbo, and it's dead, and, and all of those other adjectives we might use to describe religion. But what I mean by religion is a system of beliefs and practices. All religions are systems of beliefs and practices. And in fact, that's what distinguishes them one from another. For example, Hinduism has numerous teachings that Hindus believe and numerous practices they practice, rituals, rites, ceremonies, and behaviors. Or one might think of Islam, a system of beliefs and practices, again, coming out of the Quran and their tradition, things that they believe and practices they practice and rituals they're involved in and so on. So Christianity is a system of beliefs and practices. And I mentioned this a little bit as we are going through the Heidelberg Catechism this morning. We have a body of beliefs, a body of propositions, a body of doctrine and truth that God has revealed to us, the Bible. Now, we don't believe that these other religions are true, We don't believe that the Quran or the Bhagavad Gita or any of the other writings of any other religion, which they follow, which they believe to be true and then practice, we don't believe those to be true. We are not um, Protestant liberals who think, you know, there are many routes up to the top of the mountain. They're all fine. They're all, you know, let's just coexist with them all, because we're all going to the same place, we're all going to the same top of that mountain. No, we, as Bible-believing Christians, believe in the exclusivity of Christianity that uh, Jesus said, as Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Not by me and then plus any other religious leader that you want to follow based on your culture or your background or whatnot. So Christianity is a system of beliefs and practices. Um, and again, we, we derive what we practice out of the scriptures, out of God's revelation. What we believe in terms of ceremonies or rituals, the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism, um, and behavior. We, we, we hear God's word teaching us how to behave. As I've mentioned in this book of Ephesians, uh, Paul is talking about the indicative, first of all, what we are in Christ, but then he'll shift to, if that's true, if that's what you are in Christ, now here's how you ought to live, the imperatives. So, uh, again, Christianity is a religion of knowledge, and it is a knowledge of the truth, of God's revealed truth. But I also mentioned last time that it is a religion of power, Sir Francis Bacon, that 16th century philosopher and statesman, wrote a very, very um, well-known verse you're probably familiar with, knowledge is power. Now, he meant that in the context of science. But in a spiritual sense, that is true. 
It is the understanding of the truth, the knowledge of the truth, coupled with the belief of that truth, our faith in that truth that the Holy Spirit uses to apply the work of Christ to his church. And that has results or effects in our lives. Uh, If it didn't, what good would it be? If all it was was, yeah, we just understand all that's written in this book called the Bible, and um, I'll put that on the shelf with all of my other books. I believe I understand what's in it, but the point is you believe it to be the truth. Because if you do, it's going to have huge uh, ramifications in your life. You know, what you believe, of course, concerning reality, but also how you behave and so on. And we saw last week that the power of God is what raises up from spirit raises us up from spiritual death. <clears throat> and it is that same power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. This power elevated Christ above all human and angelic beings and subjected all to Christ's reign and made him to be the head over all, all things to the church. And God wants us to know that exceedingly great power. We must know the truth and the power of that truth in our lives. And of course, the first demonstration of that power is that making us alive in Christ, that regenerating us by the power of the Holy Spirit so that then we believe the gospel and we're new creatures in Christ because of that. But if all we do is just know the truth, as it were, we just know the propositions of scripture, but we've never known the power of that in our own souls, in our hearts, in our minds, then again, what good is it? It's not any, it won't do you any good. There has to be that linkage, if you will, between the truth and God's power to make us those new creatures in Christ so that we're no longer dead in our sins and trespasses, but now we have been raised to newness of life in Christ. We've been resurrected with him. We also saw last week that in chapters uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Paul reminds the Ephesians um, and us of the way we were, what we were in Adam. That, of course, in stark contrast to what we are in Christ now. And remember, we saw that in the sit portion of our sit, walk, stand framework for this book of Ephesians, This describes the who and what we are in Christ, the walk and the stand positions will, or or will flow out of this sit position. And, uh, and of course we will get into that once we get into chapter four and on in the book of Ephesians. But we saw last week that we were dead in trespasses and sins in which we once walked all according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, the devil, the instigator, and that we were sons or children of disobedience and rebellion to God, fulfilling the lusts of our sinful natures, of our mind and bodies, 
And so we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now that is certainly a bleak and black picture of what we were in Adam and currently the condition of everyone, the whole world who are not regenerated by that power of God. And that truly is bad news. But then we come to verse four. And my text this morning will be verses four through seven. And we come to what Lloyd-Jones, in his commentary on the book of Ephesians, says, he, he calls these two wonderful words, but God. He says that these two words suggest a connection with something that has gone before. It is similar to the word therefore, which is a, which is a transitional word which sing, signals a conclusion from what went before. So if you have a number of statements, then it's therefore, this is a conclusion to all that that went before. The word but is a conjunction and a connection to what went before, but it always suggests a contrast. And here it shows a stark contrast of what we were before, which I just read in verses 1 through 3, dead in sin and following the course of this world and all of that, children of wrath, but God. And now we we shift. Joan says, with these two words, we come to the introduction to the Christian message. He says, these two words, in and of themselves, in a sense, contain the whole of the gospel. The gospel tells us what God has done, his intervention. And it is something entirely outside of us. And but for God's intervention, we would remain in an utterly hopeless situation, dead in sin. But verse 4 says, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. But God, this may remind us of a similar phrase that we find in Romans 3.21, but now, which I'm sure uh, Sam will go over in our Sunday school class after our fellowship time this afternoon. And that but now was after Paul had described a similar bleak and dark situation. But now. So this, but God is a transition from the hopelessness and despair of man in sin to the hope and comfort of the gospel, wrote Jones. We were dead in trespasses and sins, but God. We walked according to the course of this world, but God. We walked according to the prince of the power of the air, but God. And we walked as sons of disobedience. But God, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, but God. And we were children of wrath like all of the rest of mankind, but God. But God intervened. Why? Well, ultimately, of course, it was according to his grand eternal purpose and plan, the decree of God, part of which is to manifest his attributes to the praise 
to his praise and glory. But it says here in verse 4, but God who is rich in mercy. Not just merciful, but abounding in mercy, overflowing with it. Rich, not poor in mercy. Well, one might ask, well, what is mercy? Joel Beakey says, it is God's active compassion towards those in misery. So we just described our misery and God in his active compassion towards us intervenes in our lives. And we see here also that God's mercy flows out of his love for us. But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, this great love of God for us originates completely in God. Beakey says, God loves with sovereign freedom, for his redeeming love is expressed in his election of and covenant with his people. And this love isn't just love, as it says here. It says it is his great love with which he loved us. His great love. Now we know that love is essential to God. 1 John 4, 8 and 16 states, God is love. Beaky says that God's love permeates all his attributes and harmonizes with them all. His holiness is a loving holiness, and his love is a holy love. And you could plug in there any of the attributes of God. There's also that inner Trinitarian love between the three persons of the Trinity, which is eternal. Beaky says the Father's love for the Son in the Spirit is the infinite and eternal act of the whole divine life. And God pours out this great love upon us, which when he has elected uh, to love, us whom he has elected to love from all eternity. God puts his love upon us in all eternity before creation. And that just boggles the mind when you try to think about that. Because we are so creatures, so finite creatures of space and time that we can't consider, we can't get, wrap our minds around this idea that God knew us and loved us before he had created anything else. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? And God's love is poured out upon us. It is manifest to us in his goodness and kindness, in his providential care for us. But it is supremely demonstrated to us in the giving of his son for our redemption. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, John 3.16 says. But here's what it says in Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst. The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one will save He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Isn't that a marvelous picture of the covenant promise? I will be your God and you shall be my people. And then Paul says, after all of that, God's mercy and love toward us 
even when we were dead in our trespasses. God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Here we have another reminder again of who we were. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God loved us when we were dead in sin. Romans 5a puts it like this, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, there was nothing in us that caused God to love us. Nothing in us that attracted him to us. Being dead in sin, we were altogether unlovely. In fact, we were revolting and repulsive. Let me return to the zombie analogy that I mentioned last week. Being dead in sin, we were like rotting corpses walking about. Now, I've never encountered a dead, rotting human corpse, and I am truly thankful for that. But I understand it to be one of the most repulsive, horrible stenches that you can, that you can smell. In the 21st century America, of course, we are pretty shielded from death from putrefaction and its vile stench. And again, I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for all the technologies that we have that protect our noses in the course of a day. But if you think of it, in the first century when this letter was written, the people of that day encountered death and its stench probably quite often. So again, in that state, there would be nothing in us that would motivate God to love us. Think of a zombie trying to be more attractive, more acceptable to one of the living. Think of a female zombie might try to put on a little lipstick on those rotting lips, maybe spray a little perfume on to smell a little bit better, but it wouldn't work. The overpowering stench would cause the object of her affections to vomit and run. Now, I know this may be difficult to listen to, but I'm trying to paint the picture of how utterly revolting we being dead in sin would be to an all-holy God. And yet, wonder of wonders, in that state, God has set his love upon us and intervened by making us alive together with Christ. He resurrected us from that spiritual death, from being rotting spiritual corpses, and made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, Paul says. Now, Paul will develop this truth more clearly in verses 8 through 9, which we shall, Lord willing, examine next week. But this stresses the truth that it is by God's unmerited favor toward us that we are saved and not anything which we could do to try to make ourselves more acceptable to him, like applying some spiritual lipstick or perfume to mask what we were in ourselves in Adam. Paul continues with God's divine intervention. He says, he made us alive together with Christ. And in verse 6, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Together, together, together. Made us alive, raised us up, and seated us together with Christ. Lloyd-Jones says that this is in the aorist tense in the Greek, meaning it is in the past, 
It is completed once and for all. It has already been done. It is finished. This is our position in Christ, the indicative. This is who we are in Christ. This all demonstrates the amazing doctrine of our union with Christ. This union with Christ is forensic or legal, federal and covenantal in nature. It is a spiritual reality, not something that we can observe with our senses. We must walk by faith and not by sight. Now we know that there are two federal headships in the human race, Adam and Christ. And I would refer you to Romans 5, verses 12 through 21, for a thorough demonstration of that truth, that there are two headships, the first Adam and the last Adam, being Jesus Christ. And all humanity is in Adam. And all of God's elect are in Christ, having been in Adam. So we are made alive, raised up or resurrected. We're no longer dead in sin, no longer spiritual zombies. We are no longer under God's wrath. And we are made to sit in the heavenlies, in Christ Jesus. We are positionally out of the realm of Satan, of darkness, and in our eternal home positionally. Here in this life, we are aliens, pilgrims, sojourners. Our our citizenship is in heaven, as Paul said. We are no longer led by the mind of the world, the world spirit. Rather, now we are led by the spirit of God. And then Paul says that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That word that meaning for this reason, that in the ages to come, what a, what a hope for an amazing future for us. For all eternity, God is going to show not just the riches of his grace, which would be magnificent, but the exceeding riches of his grace, the superlative, the best of the best of God's grace, of his unmerited favor in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. There it again, there it is again, that reminder of our union with Christ forever in Christ forever with Christ. And you know, when you think about our sit, walk, stand framework, the walk and the stand aspects of it are really only temporary. And all of that will end with the return of Christ and the new heavens and the new earth. But this sit position, which we've been considering over these few weeks, is eternal. It is the fountain of all spiritual blessings in this life and for all eternity. And it is all a demonstration of the covenant of grace and all accomplished by God's amazing power. So what are we to do with all of this? What is the practical applications in our lives, in the here and now, 
of all of that while we wait for the return of Christ? Well, first of all, we must know it. We must understand it. Remember back to Paul's prayer and what he was saying in in chapter 1, that we must have that pray for that spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Christ. Pray that we would know these things. And I stressed earlier in the catechism and then a little bit earlier in this uh, exhortation that, you know, for, if you don't know it, then right there you've stopped any application if you don't know it. And so we must, like the psalmist in Psalm 119, uh, pray, you know, if, if you recall reading through Psalm 119, the longest psalm of the Psalms, you come across numerous times where the psalmist says, give me understanding, give me knowledge, give me wisdom, teach me, instruct me. And also in that psalm, you'll find numerous times where the psalmist says, I meditate upon your word, your law, the truth. So we must know it and we must meditate upon it. But secondly, we must believe it. We must believe these truths. Do you believe that you are in Christ, in union with him right now? That's not something that comes from our own reasoning or by our sense observation. You will not see, hear, taste, smell, or touch these truths. Some groups may try to manufacture some sort of mystical religious experience so that you, you really feel it. You know. But we have to walk, the Bible says, by faith and not by sight, not by sense. These truths have been revealed to us by God in the scriptures. We must believe his testimony. And our cry might be, Lord, I believe, but help thou my unbelief. You know, aware of doubts and unbelief in our mind, in our heart. Lord, root root those out. Renew my mind so that those dissipate and faith increases. And we must, as Paul writes in Colossians 3, 1 to 4, and he puts this in a conditional sort of way, he says, if then you were raised with Christ, so if that's true of you, if positionally you have been raised with Christ, he says, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on things of the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So we must seek the Lord. We must set our minds on these things which are above reading, meditating upon these truths, letting them wean us off of the things of this world and and renewing our minds so that our priority is setting our minds on things above and not on the things of the earth. Of course, you're going to have to deal with the things of the earth, right? You're going to have to get up, go to work, you know, pay the bills, 
live, drive a car. You know, you're going to have to do all of these things, but that shouldn't be your overwhelming focus. We should be setting our minds on things above and again, acting like those pilgrims who are just passing through this life. So we must be what we are in Christ, which God declares we are dead to sin, raised with Christ, seated in the heavenly places. We must be that in our lives. Know, believe, and live or act like it. And all of that, of course, the acting like it part of it is going to be more fully developed in Ephesians 4 through 6 when we get to that point. But let us rejoice in this truth that God has revealed to us and not take it for granted and not read through it and then move on. Let's get to the practical stuff. This is so important to get in our, you know, get down into our souls so that out of that will flow that living that'll bring glory to God. But again, that's even temporary. What we are in Christ is eternal. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do give thanks to you for this truth revealed uh, by your Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul. This is something that we would never come to understand if left to our own reasoning or to our sense observations. No one would ever know these truths, Lord, unless you reveal them to us that we are, we were dead in sin and now alive in Christ, resurrected and raised with Christ to the heavenlies to be seated at your right hand. And we may not quite understand all that entails and what that actually means exactly. So we pray that you would give us that spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Christ, and that we may know these things, and that you would increase our faith, that we would believe these things more deeply with a greater, stronger conviction and that you would root out all doubt and unbelief in our hearts and help us to then bear fruit by your Holy Spirit, your the power that you have toward us in the Holy Spirit to bear that fruit that will bring you glory and make us bold witnesses of this truth to those around us. So help us, Lord, we pray in our weakness and um, stir up in us that well-guided zeal to be truly captured by this, that we would truly set our minds on things above and not on the things of the earth. Help us in our weakness and our, our frailty and our sins. Forgive us and wash us clean for the sake of Christ's work. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, the head of the church. Amen.